So when he landed at 8 p.m. that Friday and the hours ticked, I was talking to his wife who was already in the States and she had not heard from him. We knew something was up. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, the podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Vaith. On today's show, we talk with Julie Kornfeld. Julie is an attorney with the International Refugee Assistance Project. You may have heard of IRAP if you think back to January 27th, exactly one week into the Trump administration. That, of course, was the Friday of the infamous Muslim ban. One of the most enduring images from that weekend, along with the massive airport protest, was that of lawyers and law students sitting on airport floors with their laptops, doing everything they could do to help. Julie was one of those lawyers. Her client was actually in the air at the moment the executive order came down. Today, Julie tells us her client's story and what IRAP is working on these days. We did record this conversation before two pieces of news. The good news from both the Fourth and Ninth Circuit Courts of Appeals that they would uphold the injunction against the ban, but also some bad news from the Supreme Court allowing the ban to take partial effect until it hears the case this fall. Needless to say, the story is far from over, so stay tuned, and in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Julie Kornfeld. Julie, it's really great to meet you. Welcome to The Resistors. Thank you so much for having me. So many of us learned first of the International Refugee Assistance Project's work soon after the travel ban was issued on January 27th. Can you tell us about that fateful day? Yeah, so I think I actually have to back up a couple more days from that Friday. Uh, IRAP provides legal assistance to refugees and other persecuted individuals throughout the world. And on Tuesday, I believe, we were leaked a draft of the executive order. And we uh, reviewed this draft and we knew that this would affect a majority of our clients. And from that, we started uh, initiating uh, outreach to our clients who had travel dates uh, lined up, letting them know that, hey, this order might be signed and it could affect you. And so we were encouraging those who were able to travel to come to the U.S. as soon as possible, but letting them know that at any moment, this order could be signed. Not only did we let our clients know, but we also sent out calls for lawyers across the country to um, sign up in case there would be something like we saw on Friday, Saturday of that, uh, that January where lawyers were needed to release clients. Um, and so on Friday at 4.44 p.m. when uh, the executive order was signed, IRAP had two clients in the air. Um, my client, a hider, uh, he was a Iraqi refugee coming from Sweden. Um, and he, I had provided him with letters of, uh, letting whoever he came in contact with, letting him know that he had a legal right to enter this country. Um, and that Julie, his lawyer would be present at the airport if there were any issues. So when he landed at 8 PM that Friday, and wasn't and the hours ticked. I was talking to his wife, who was already in the states, and she had not heard from him. We knew something was up, and so I immediately, um, around 10 p.m., started uh, getting together with other lawyers in the area to figure out how we could fight this. You mentioned the call to action. Was that a Google spreadsheet that was kind of floating around the internet, signing up attorneys? and law students who might be interested in helping out either in New York or around the country? Exactly. I think it was on Wednesday that we sent out this uh, Google form that linked to the spreadsheet. Um, 
honestly, at the time, I kind of thought it was a little premature. I was like, oh, I had I had, was doing research on how I thought uh, credible fear interviews might happen. Um, credible fear interviews are interviews that people who are claiming asylum uh, go through. And from the research I had done, it seemed like most of these interviews were not going to take place at airports. They were going to be placed in detention centers. And so I thought it was kind of premature that we would need lawyers at airports. Uh, but it turned out that I was wrong, and it was a good thing because from that list, I think we got like 3,200 lawyers who signed up. Um, and so on Friday, when we realized that people were actually being detained in airports and not having those credible fear interviews in detention centers, like I had thought, uh, that the, we could unleash the 3,200 lawyers to the airports around the country. And soon that spawned to 10,000 lawyers, probably, um, in airports all across the country. But it all started at JFK. A lot of us saw the images of protests outside the airport. Did you kind of walk through that to come into the airport? No. Um, so I and my colleague, Mark Doss, uh, again, we were the lawyers for two of the clients that were uh, our clients that were in the air. And so we actually arrived at the airport at like 2.30 in the morning um, that Friday, Saturday. Uh, and at that time, we were the only ones there. Uh, we had a team of law students and an attorney that was uh, there because their client was arriving at like 6 p.m. And so they had been there since 6 p.m. And again, it was just the uh, handful of us. Um, and by the time that Mark and I got there, our clients had been detained for eight hours. Um, and so we uh, approached the Customs and Border Protection officers and told them the situation that they had two of our clients and that we demanded a right to speak with them. And the Customs and Border Protection agent told us that uh, I can't do anything. You have to call Trump. It was Trump's doing. That was why our clients were being detained. Did they give you his phone number? They did not, unfortunately. <laughs> they said call him, but yeah, I, he, they didn't have the phone number. I do remember mm -hmm. the White House switchboard <laughs> comment line shut down soon after. And, and just as a reminder, this is only one week after uh, the Trump inauguration. Exactly. It's January 27th. Inauguration was the 20th, right? Right. So I imagine the the mass confusion that uh, the attorneys and the detainees experienced was being experienced on the other side by uh, CBP officers, and no one really knew what to do. Exactly. At one point, um, I thought I was waiting for um, the secret the home the Secretary of Homeland Security signature, and at that point, I don't think we had one. So it was uh, there and there was no clear rhyme, uh, no clear uh, decision on who was giving out the guidance. Um, it was very sporadic throughout airport and airport. We're still seeing this, unfortunately, that nobody has a set policy on how to handle um, uh, arrivees from these seven, now six countries. I remember uh, Representative Nidia Velasquez and I think Gerald Nadler yep. rushing through the airport in their street clothes, were they helpful in gaining access? Was it the attorneys who were finally able to get through to the, your clients? We never were given access to our clients while they are being detained. Um, but Congressman Nadler, Congresswoman uh, Velasquez were instrumental because they were able to provide us with more information that we were given than the CBP officers. Uh, they were actually allowed past 
the security line and were talking to high up CBP officers that were giving us the most accurate information. They never got to meet our clients, but um, they were given the most accurate information when relayed to us. And so when we uh, would get calls from our uh, client's wife saying they're deporting, my husband's being deported, I could then check in with the congresswomen and they could clarify that that's not actually what was happening. That was a misinterpretation between one officer and our client. And everything is status quo as of now. How did the rest of the weekend unfold? So um, I arrived at 2.30 in the morning. For the next like three, four hours, I was busy trying to communicate with CBP officers, communicate with my client's wife, keep her apprised of the situation. But also, uh, Mark and I were on our laptops because at the same time, IRAP, ACLU, and NILC and the Yale Law School Clinic were working on a habeas petition in uh, name of my client, our clients and others similarly in their position. And so at 5.30 in the morning is when we submitted that initial habeas uh, petition. That's the first petition that was filed against sitting President Trump. Obviously, uh, President Trump has had many lawsuits filed against him even before he took office, uh, but this was the first one as uh, president. And once that broke, uh, immediately we saw, uh, soon after, a New York Times story also broke. Uh, We had a journalist that was watching these events unfold from 2.30 to 5.30 a.m. And soon after those two things happened, Mark and I started noticing uh, many more people with notepads coming at us. Um, And so there were many more reporters that had uh, learned about the situation and uh, we, they started reporting and then we started getting reports that it wasn't just happening in New York, um, that it was happening in uh, airports all over the country. And so by 1030 AM, I think there were dozens of reporters protests, started outside. We also were able to get the congressional support, which was instrumental, as I mentioned. Luckily, I was able to, I had the number for CBP in New York, and uh, some of those numbers are not as easily accessible for the other airports. Um, And so there was definitely issues with that. Uh, But around uh, 10, 30, 11 on that Saturday, that's when all of IRAP stuff became 24-7. They were, uh, that's when we sent out the call um, and we were, became uh, the emergency hotline for any issue that we were seeing of detention. And so we would not only hear about people being detained from, that, uh, from our email, but then with eyes on the ground, uh, you could see people with uh, signs saying, need a lawyer help. And uh, family members of people waiting for their loved ones to arrive um, after hours of their loved one not being, uh, not seeing them, they would go up to these lawyers. IRAP had cre- uh, used our habeas petition that we filed for um, Hyder and others, and we created a form habeas petition so that lawyers around the country could easily use the information that they were receiving from loved ones to file petitions uh, to get these people that were being detained released. I remember whenever I would go to the bathroom, I would see people with signs that had were able to sneak in. I was able to tell my client's wife that what's going on is awful, but I can tell you there are hundreds if not thousands of people outside this airport now demanding the release of your husband, saying that this is not what America stands for and this is not right. And not only was I able to tell her this, but when Hyder, my client, was actually released, we actually got to walk by this protest. And it was so powerful. He started cheering, refugees are welcome here. And so even though he had 
um, been detained for 22 hours, being released to all this protest was one of the best welcomes he could have asked for. And how is he doing today? He is doing great. He um, He's happily reunited with his wife and his uh seven-year-old son. He had a birthday. I called him. It was one of the first birthdays that he was able to celebrate with his family. Um, And he's just uh, loving being reunited with his family. The scale of today's refugee crisis, according to UNHCR, is on par with that after World War II. But there is such a range of places that people are fleeing. Does IRAP work mostly with refugees from particular countries? I'm thinking, of course, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, or is there really a breadth across the world? Haider was our client before the executive order. We had been working with him and his family for years to help him navigate the legal process. Haider is a U.S.-affiliated Iraqi, and that's kind of where um, IRAP started. In 2008, um, a group of Yale Law students, all uh, with different connections to the Iraq uh, war, developed this organization because they had um, spoken with various Iraqi refugees um, throughout the region, a lot in Jordan. And the number one issue that they mentioned was not that they needed housing, not that they needed health care, was that they needed legal services. And so from that, that's how IRAP formed. And but from like day two, um, we started as the Rocky Refugee uh, Assistance Project. From day two, it soon became a misnomer. We were uh, helping more than just Iraqis. We were helping Afghans, Somalis, Sudanese, um, any refugee persecuted individual that needed legal assistance. Given that we started as the Rocky Refugee Assistance Project, and that there are specific pathways to resettlement for U.S. affiliated Iraqis and Afghans. Um, our most of our clients are from the Middle East, but we do. Uh, I think we have represented over like fifty different nationalities, um, and so anyone who contacts IRAP. We uh, communicate with them and figure out if there is a way for IRAP to provide legal assistance. We never turn someone down if there is a path of legal help. When we who have not been through the immigration system in the United States think of refugees, we kind of have a view of what that population looks like. But there's quite a bit of diversity within it. Yeah, our clients come from all backgrounds. Um, one client uh, that comes to mind was a Pakistani woman. I'll tell you a happy story, and then I'll tell you a, a story still in limbo. Um, a Pakistani woman who fled to Malaysia. Um, she was initially denied refugee status. Uh, there was a lot of inconsistencies in her story. Uh, she was having trouble remembering dates, and um, dates that she would say were wouldn't be accurate, and just lots of holes in her story. She came in contact with IRAP, um, and the legal team uh, was able to re- uh, uncover that these inconsistencies were a result of post-traumatic stress. She actually um, had been uh, part of a brothel, a horrible um, sex trafficking ring. And the experiences that she go- went through was creating these inconsistencies in the story. But unfor- those um, horrible things that happened are also what make her a refugee. And so through time, through uh, counseling, psychological counseling that IRAP was able to refer her to, um, and then extra evidence that IRAP was able to uh, develop from her, as well as just country of origin information, we were able to take the onus off of our client 
And um, she, soon after, she was given refugee status by UNHCR, and then she went through the whole U.S. refugee process and then was resettled earlier this year. And then another client um, that I have that is unfortunately still um, in Iraq was he's a U.S.-affiliated Iraqi. He worked for the U.S. Uh, military in Iraq for years. Uh, he uh, has numerous letters of recommendations from very supportive supervisors. However, he uh, used a cell phone on base once, and that is against uh, U.S. military code. It was a quick call to let his mother know that she he wouldn't be able to come home that uh, that weekend. But because of that incident, he was... Uh, temporarily terminated from the U.S. military. And now when he's applying for a special immigrant visa, uh, he uh, the box that we have to check called Faithful and Valuable Service, is he's not getting that tick because of his termination. And unfortunately, he's still under extreme threat in Iraq. Um, not only did he work for years with the U.S. military, but he also is extremely talented and was on um, a TV show that makes him widely known across the region. So it's really, really unfortunate. We're trying all we can to um, make sure that he gets here safely. What is the current focus of IREP? So IREP's primary focus is always our clients. Uh, we are here to provide legal assistance to persecuted individuals. However, given the executive order, uh, we now are not only just doing case-by-case legal assistance, but we have become very involved in the litigation uh, challenging these executive orders. Uh, The first uh, piece of litigation was obviously Darwish v. Trump. That's the habeas petition that I mentioned was filed that Saturday morning at 5.30 um, in the morning. Uh, but since then, we've also, uh, our party on a lawsuit, we're uh, called IRAP v. Trump, and that's uh, a, that's challenging the entirety of the uh, Muslim ban. Is that in the Virginia court? Yes, yeah, so that's in the Fourth Circuit. The fact that it was in front of a panel of 13 judges was unprecedented. Usually there's a stage that happens before that, and the judges convened and thought that this uh, – this uh, case was so important that it needed to go straight to that level. So I think that's in and of itself speaks for a lot. We're hoping for a decision somewhat soon, um, given how the courts have decided in the past, um, saying that this is unconstitutional. We are hopeful um, that uh, we will also receive an order in our favor um, soon. I think for those of us who are not lawyers who follow the news and hear about the jumble of lawsuits from Virginia to Washington State to Hawaii, are some of these courts and judges likely to be more favorable? I know that each of the lawsuits is challenging a different or overlapping piece of um, the, the ban. So I think the focus needs to be both in the Fourth Circuit with IRAP v. Trump, as well as the Ninth Circuit, Hawaii v. Trump, also challenging the entirety of the Muslim ban. And uh, the Hawaii case was filed. There was a decision on that uh that, became, that preceded IRAP v. Trump. And so that Hawaii v. Trump was the first 
uh, case that led to the stay on the second executive order. Um, IRF v. Trump also led to a stay on portions of the second executive order. So you're going to see these two cases going up uh, the various uh, courts to eventually likely reach the Supreme Court. So when it gets to the Supreme Court, it will either be IRF v. Trump or Hawaii v. Trump. I've heard the term community lawyering, where there's some combination of legal work and grassroots organizing. I don't know if that's the way you describe it, but it does seem that you have some connection between your legal assistance and litigation uh, with the grassroots and with community-based organizations. And I just wonder how that works for IRAP. Yeah, so we're basically able to provide assistance to anyone that has a cell phone. And uh, IRAP, uh, as an organization directly applies that assistance, but we also have a team of 29 law school chapters as well as 75 law firm partners, and they work on these cases uh, with, under our guidance. And so from that, we have an army of uh, lawyers that are well-educated on refugee law and um, have lots of different ties to various communities. Um, from our uh, individual casework, we leverage that for our policy and grassroots efforts. And so IRAP actually has had uh, eight successful pieces of le uh, legislation passed, um, all, again, with our clients in mind. And now, uh, as the executive orders are unfolding, uh, we are getting, we're still receiving requests on a daily basis on people that are uh, being detained or taken off air, uh, airport lines or visas revoked. And whenever we get uh, those calls, we mobilize our network of lawyers and, and students uh, and see if and how we can assist these people. Do you think the, the times in which we live, which are so unique, have impacted aspiring law students and recent law graduates? I definitely think so. I actually just graduated law school in uh, May 2016, and I, um, I went to law school specifically for refugee law. Originally, I was thinking about medical school because, again, I, wanted, I thought that was what was needed in emergencies. But I realize now that I had a very narrow um, uh, view of what emergency was, and I feel so lucky to have the legal skill set that I have to be working in this type of emergency. Um, I lived in Uganda for some time, and but from that time, I realized that it wasn't the conflicts that I was interested in. It was the people affected by the conflict and hearing those individual stories because every refugee that you meet has a very unique, powerful story. I learned so much from every one of my clients, and not only um, am I helping them with their lives, they're profoundly impacting mine. Was that a family tradition, or did you feel that kind of earlier in life before you headed off to law school? Uh, definitely. Uh, my Both of my parents are very involved in our community. Um, they thought of a community more local than I do, um, but uh, they were they always instilled in me a passion to give back. And not only that, I am um, from a Jewish upbringing, and my rabbi was very influential in getting me involved in East Africa and uh, making me aware of Darfur and Rwanda. And that was my first uh, exposure to the conflicts that were happening in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as uh, refugees. I actually went to a rally uh, for Darfur in, my high, in high school. I made my rabbi come with me. He had just talk, told me about what was happening in Darfur, and I learned about this rally, and I was like, we have to go. We have to do something. And we're standing in this crowd on the National Mall, 
um, protesting for uh, what's going on in Darfur, and Rwandan refugees walk by, um, and that was it. I was like, okay, uh, all this is coming together. Um, this is, I belong doing some kind of work in this region. The United States is in large measure a nation of immigrants and refugees, uh, but I think that Many Americans, again, if they have not been through the system of immigration here, have no idea what their compatriots have endured to become a part of this society. How might more of us become aware of refugee experiences and support the protection of refugee rights? Yeah, so I think um, a really easy way is to reach out to local resettlement agencies. Um, That was actually how, besides that initial interaction with uh, uh, Rwandan refugees, I then interned with a resettlement agency in Chicago. In addition to doing uh, working for refugee resettlement agencies, you can always donate to IRAP. If you're a law student, uh, get involved in one of our law school chapters. If you are at a law school that doesn't have a chapter, let us know. Uh, we uh, are willing to start law school chapters. If you're a lawyer um, if, at your firm, uh, ask for pro bono. Um, we do, as I mentioned, 75 law firms plus around the country and uh, the world, actually. Um, and then uh, sign up for our action alerts. Is there anything else that um, you would like to share with listeners about how they can support the efforts of IRAP, especially as your strategy evolves and as these times continue to change seemingly by the day? The more aware you are, the more aware you can make other people of how unlawful and unconstitutional this uh, travel ban is and how unnecessary it is. Why should we shut our back to these people that have endured so much and can offer our society so much? Well, Julie, I think it's safe to say that our country would be in a different place right now if it wasn't for the work of IRAP. Thanks for sitting down during such a busy time to talk with us. Thank you so much. That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Julie, Enrica, Becca, and the whole IRAP team. You can connect with them at refugeerights.org. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresistors.co.